Hey everybody, welcome back to the Slug on Sasquatch podcast. We are recording on November 22nd, 2013. Uh, my name is Nick Cummings and I'm joined today by Spencer Tordoff. You gave the date just to keep me accountable, didn't you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, also here today is Tyler Martin. Hey. And Aaron Thayer. Good afternoon, evening, or morning, depending on when you listen to this. It's a Truman Show thing almost, isn't it? I think so. Okay, we'll go with that from now on. Uh, the topic for today, in the spirit of uh, what Americans hold so near and dear, is uh, consumerism, and specifically the concept of sales. Uh so what I mean is Black Friday is just around the corner from the recording of this podcast. It'll probably be happening around the time you're listening to this. So please board up your windows and stay inside and don't buy anything. But uh, when it comes to games in particular, Black Friday and the concept of sales in particular has a, a kind of a special significance, especially as things have changed so much in the past few years. It used to be that you would expect to buy a game at full retail price back when cartridges and CD-ROMs were the you know, kind of par for the course for games. But now that things are starting to go digital on not just PC, but handhelds and consoles, the whole concept of pricing for games and sales and bundles uh, has really shaken things up to the point where it's kind of changed the way that I think most of us look at buying a game. Like, would you buy a full price indie game anymore when a Humble Bundle will probably come out in 6 to 12 months featuring that game for a pay-what-you-want scale? Or do you want to buy a game for full price on Steam when they have their very kind of regular uh, sales with huge discounts? Uh, so just to kind of kick things off, um, does anybody want to chime in with their thoughts on what? why is this happening in games in particular? Why is there no humble bundle for Criterion Collection movies or novels from Barbara Kingsolver? Well, I mean, I think you're kind of making things too specific there. I mean... Saying that there's no Criterion Collection Humble Bundle is different than saying there's no equivalent just for movies in general, which they're kind of Okay, well, let's say movies in general. Well, I mean, there are. Like, it's just movies are much more ingrained with that, like, hard selling, like, the, the DVDs. But, like, you can go to, like, a Kmart or a Walmart and you see, like, the huge, like, DVD, like, compost bin where you can just pick out anything for, like, $5. And a lot of times it's, like, several movies all packaged together. Movies that... In other circumstances, you might not think they're similar at all. It's like, you can get Harold and Kumar, and you can get Requiem of a Dream together for $5. It's like, why? I don't know. We need to sell them. I guess the key difference there is that those price drops are often permanent. Like, when a movie hits the bargain bin, it's not coming back out. But you could see a $20 game, like, you know, theoretically a Gone Home or a Fez, which is 10 uh, drop down to $2 or pay what you want, and then go right back up to its standard price. Does that happen in other media? Not aside from, I guess, special retailer discounts, which um, Black Friday is something that we'll mention separately. But um, yeah, there, it doesn't happen. You're right, Nick. And You'll see it digitally, feeling- though. You see sales on the Apple rentals and uh, Sony rentals and stuff and the movies that they have on sale. That's a good point. Yeah, it, We just don't see it because we don't really pay attention to that stuff. But that's the thing is who's actually buying movies as far as content goes. I think... In my opinion, um, it's not as prevalent, or maybe I don't care, because I do have a video subscription service, Netflix, or the others that people use for movies. I just pay for that, and then occasionally will 
if I'm being honest, torrent something and then maybe buy it later if I really like it, but I don't buy movies anymore. I'll just kind of wait until they go to second run um, or I'll go to the theater for the uh, special occasional film with games. I, I feel like there's not the subscription service to kind of entirely devalue the medium. So um, starting with indie developers and platforms like Steam that were at one point more independent and not as large as Steam is now, you know, they're still independent. Um, I think it was just a clever way to start getting in new business and getting gamers to play the games. And because uh, everybody got a taste of it, it's now irresistible. And almost every platform has to do these big discounts every few months. I think um, I think you, Tyler made a good point about digital discounts on movies and TV. Because we don't really look to that stuff as much. I think he, he's right about that. But when I think about, I think it's best to look at it, or it might be helpful to look at it from the perspective of enthusiast versus casual consumer. Because my understanding is that the average like consumer likes the idea of buying a TV show series or a movie uh, through iTunes or through Sony or through some other digital component where they're not super worried about having all the bonus features or all that stuff, but they just want to watch the movie the easiest way possible. Uh, whereas collectors are like the hardcore movie buffs would go out and buy the blu-ray version with all the special features with the best capture from the original source film or digital you know image whatever it may be uh whereas with games it's it's different in that the hardcore is i think i think it's fair to say this please disagree if you if you want to has largely accepted digital as a preferred way to pick up games like there are still collectors who really prize having that limited edition with the box and everything but the more enthusiastic people are about games, the more I think they tend to value that digital option, which has the, you know, the capability for early access or beta builds or all that kind of stuff that people kind of really flock to. You're ignoring a big uh, selling point in games, though, which is the coveted collector's edition with its plastic tchotchkes. Yeah, well, I mean, I just mentioned that, but like, I think that that appeals to a different sector than what I understand to be the hardcore. Really? You don't think the hardcore, the people that are spending $150 on the special edition of Titanfall to get that statue? No, I think they're your average college dude, bro, who gets really into Titanfall or Call of Duty and draws the line there. I think it's shifted from where it was like, I would line up to get the Diablo 2 battle chest or like the special edition or whatever, but these days I wouldn't bother with a special edition for any game. I don't know. I, I can only speak for myself, though. Aren't we kind of ignoring the fact that the hardcore people changed the policies of the Xbox One with their complaining? Yeah, that was an all digital thing, and that would have been a way to share games and to have that digital ownership uh, evolution. But they said no; we want to be able to uh, trade and share our games physically. That's a good point. Um, and since this is very into like ownership and kind of like quasi libertarian territory, Spencer, I would love to hear your thoughts on the concept <laughs> on, of digital he's, ownership. He's playing Alpha Centauri right now, so give him a second. This is secretly the Ron Paul no 2016 DRM. podcast. <laughs> Not actually being a libertarian, but um, <laughs> closing pretty rapidly on uh, anarcho-futurist, which is kind of its own thing. <laughs> I think that the reason that games are kind of in this weird area is because they exist in the uh, intersection of digital distribution, which honestly, well, uh, well, film and TV has caught up. It's still the cutting edge, like. Games are the most available uh, digital commodity to a certain extent. Uh, they release the same day in a digital format, are available immediately. 
it's really beyond compare to anything else, especially for something that was a physical good. However, at the same time, uh, game licensing is really kind of draconic compared to film and television. Really? Well, if you compare, like, so you get the FBI notice saying, oh, you can't show this in public, you can't blah, blah, blah. Uh, But game licensing typically is saying you can run this on one machine, you can only change it to another machine. It's very anti-digital in a lot of its regards. And so as a result, the only attempts we've seen at game streaming as a, uh, as a medium for distribution, like, uh, on live and its competitor services, they haven't really took taken off in the same way. I'm not entirely sure why that is. It's some combination, I suspect, of licensing and the fact that, you know, if you have a game save, you want to have that game save. And if you suddenly lose your subscription to the game, you don't get it anymore. I'm honestly not sure. I thought it was just a bandwidth thing. No. I, I on live in my experience worked great, but I have, you know, broadband cable internet. Yeah. Well, theoretically, it's a thing that's going to happen with Sony in the future because of the whole Gaikai purchase and the announcement of the way they'll be streaming like legacy PlayStation titles. Yeah, that's actually kind of the biggest development in that field in a long time, ever since OnLive kind of faded from the headlines. So it'll be interesting to see what they deliver there. Didn't Gamefly have some kind of streaming service too? No, making that up? No. I don't believe so. They just sell some PC games. Oh, okay. Honestly, the... The move by Sony is kind of brilliant in that uh, they're going to make legacy games available on the PS4, but because they're only doing legacy games, they're getting extreme mileage out of their server hardware because you don't need nearly as much uh, backend to emulate you know, PS2, PS1 games versus... PS3 games are still going to be pretty big, though. PS3 games will be pretty big, true. But, I mean, compared to OnLive, which is trying to do contemporary new games over a network... Actually, the PS3 thing is brilliant because the amount of computer hardware, the price needed to really emulate that well is so minimal, especially when they run it natively like they probably will, that it's probably less data to stream a 720p or 1080p stream from a server box than it is to stream a Blu-ray was worth of content over to you. I highly doubt it'll be 1080p. Yeah, I doubt it too. But like, I doubt the service will even like materialize for a year. So we'll see. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't see us seeing it before like E3 of next year. Yeah. So do, do does the streaming aspect bring value to you guys in talking about kind of the the pricing module or the how how games are priced now? I think uh, for myself the allure of the game discounts and why I never pull, pay full price for games unless I know that they won't come down in price like a Nintendo game. Um, it was actually a way to combat piracy for myself. I never was a huge game pirate, but there were definitely times a few years ago when I was a poor college student, which, let's be honest, is a lot of the market for games still. Um, it doesn't justify it, but whatever. That was when I couldn't afford to play every game I wanted as and as an enthusiast I wanted to. Eventually I'd buy them uh, later, but once Steam started doing the sales and everybody else jumped on the bandwagon, that kind of nullified it for me, so now I just wait for the best deals. That's actually a big part of it. I mean, Steam's success, among other reasons, uh, can be tied directly to making it more convenient to own a game than to pirate it. Part of that is just the nature of digital distribution. They kind of change the game in that regard. Uh, But the other aspect is discounting things very sharply and 
relative to the market very suddenly. When I purchased Bioshock Infinite, it came with a copy of uh, XCOM. And that game was still, at, at that time, about 40 bucks. And that's a type of offer that it seems insane, but because it's digital, you're just adding profit by generating another key for the existence of this copy. It's it's uh, it's post-physical, and that's that's kind of a big deal. It's kind of the weird thing that digital distribution has done to the idea of supply-side economics. I mean, you have, have this completely oncurring idea of supply and demand, but digitally, you theoretically have infinite supply. Right. So if you could just drum up enough demand, you could put it at a penny and still make a profit. The supply really comes down to your ad space and to your targeting. Like how much information can you get out to consumers and how efficiently can you do it? And bandwidth, of course. We're not really factoring that in either. Yeah, but it's gotten to the point where the majority of consumers for this kind of product have the bandwidth. And I was was talking about the company, like the... Yeah, the server-side bandwidth and storage. Well, it seems like they're pretty well equipped too. Yeah. It's just it still costs something is all I'm saying. Uh, it costs a lot. Yeah. Well, the other the other aspect too is that not only does this, you know, it widens the market. It allows you to sell to literally anyone who wants it. But at the same time, you can continue to generate a profit on games long after their release because you don't have to press new copies. It's just sitting there on the server and you, you know, somebody makes the decision, "Hey, let's do a weekend sale of this." drop it down to five bucks, and then a bunch of people buy it over that weekend. Again, this is really just kind of unparalleled. There's no good analog for it in really any other market. Yeah, and we can kind of thank the PC market for doing it, right? Because the console manufacturers have only just in the last few years started to copy what the PC pricing scheme has been because, you know, PC more or less adopted the digital format first. But there's also iOS and mobile. True. I mean, you got the whole, like, you have free weekends, you have $1 weekends. Free up a day. Yeah, you can make cases for whether that's been a boon or kind of a curse for the gaming market as a whole. Even free-to-play, which is not, you know, a pricing, like a discount on multiple games, but just all these concurrent pricing models have absolutely shifted how consumers get their content. And uh, for instances, like MMOs that went free-to-play got, what, a 200% revenue increase over their monthly subscriptions after just about the first month. So I wonder if that's part of the method of Microsoft's design with some of their launch games that have, like, built-in free-to-play elements in them like killer instinct well not just killer instinct but even like forza like there's things you can buy in these games like microtransactions that are just like random packs and stuff and rise to rise which i uh, there is a multiplayer component to that game right like it's not just single player i assumed it was only multiplayer but i also know next to nothing about it yeah i thought it was only single player so go figure but i think they're they're looking they're being rather forward thinking i mean launch games are notorious for like they're there to drum an interest they usually don't break even they don't sell as many copies as games that launch later in the generation obviously would and they tend to sink in price more rapidly just because they were rushed out the door and newer games are becoming available as people purchase the systems so maybe they're just thinking this is a way for these games to continue earning money even when the actual value of the title itself has long since declined. Hmm. I will be curious to see what the uh, revenue for 
Killer Instinct specifically is going to be, since it is a free game, you only get one character, but uh, how many people I thought you get six. No, six is if you pay the $20. The free version is Jago only. Yeah. Jesus. So yeah, you get one character, <laughs> and how many people on launch day are going to be, considering some of the customers of Xbox that I'm familiar with, um, are going to just go, oh, okay, cool, free game. Oh, only $20 to buy these six characters? Okay, that's fine. And then that, that could be... Because an immediate install base of a million people, as we were just talking about, um, some of the news broke. Uh, what was it? A million consoles, Nick, that sold within the 24 hours? A million. So uh, a million people out there potentially with this Killer Instinct game that might just drop $20. Okay. I mean, that's a great exaggeration, but that's a smart idea for a console launch, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds troublingly similar to what Microsoft was attempting to do with uh, Microsoft Flight and Age of mm-hmm. Empires Online, where yeah. there's the one free component and then they start charging you for any further components. Uh, it just seems too reminiscent of that. And that was not a winning strategy for either of those. Flight, anyway, was canceled and. I don't know if AOEO was, but... I think one key difference is the whole Xbox Live Gold component, though. You can't play Killer Instinct online if you don't have gold. And if you're already paying... But if you're already paying for gold, what I'm saying is that you're already, like, sort of inclined to be paying for these services. Like, you're not... Yeah, your foot's halfway in the door. skirting from free thing to free thing. Right, but if you're paying, what is it, 15 a month for gold, why don't they just no. give the game to gold subscribers? It's 60 a year. Well, let's you know also remember that PlayStation is charging for online now too. So, but you get yeah, but the, the free to play games on PlayStation aren't they, they don't require PlayStation Plus. Like yeah. Warframe doesn't require it. Um, I don't know, what's the other major? Uh, Blacklight doesn't require it. Oh, okay. Oh, they're doing Blacklight on there. I'm pretty sure the the subscription games don't require it too. Like DC Universe doesn't require Plus. Interesting. Yeah, there was a. Uh, subscription is i guess a little bit different than what we were talking about but um i think there was a conversation with the elder scrolls developers of trying to bypass microsoft's gold requirement for their monthly fee to play on the xbox one so we'll see how that actually works out yeah i'm pretty sure sony's already announced for that and for final fantasy 14 when that gets ported to ps4 that they won't require plus to play online so speaking of this whole notion of subscriptions um i wanted to call out a couple of historical examples for games because I've, I've noticed that barring a few like mmorpg subscriptions they're specific to those games or like this sony station pass if that still exists uh subscription models have kind of, kind of gone away but um i remember using both sega channel in the mid 90s for my genesis you did yeah i had it for a few months i don't think it, i've ever met anyone that actually used <laughs> sega channel that's crazy it was so awesome <laughs> it was like so what what was the sega channel the sega channel was this nasty huge block you plug into the top of your genesis like most sega genesis add-ons <laughs> and you plug into your cable line and uh it would every month they'd refresh the library of games available and you could just basically on demand download a game and play it and it would re- retain your save so you can come back to it later it's crazy looking in hindsight like how forward thinking sega was sometimes but just how horribly they executed on these forward ideas yeah Oh, I know. It was like a total Howard Hughes like philosophy for them. Sega Genesis, the spruce goose of consoles. <laughs> <laughs> That's more like the 32X with the Sega CD add-on. I, <laughs> I was going to say the color of the Dreamcast at least matched. Yeah. 
<laughs> but yeah, they, they use it to, you know, you get your Sonic and your um, Alundra and your Columns and Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine pretty much every month. But then they mix in, like, uh, Japanese-only games that they bring to the U.S. through digital distribution. They had a Mega Man game, which was only on Sega Channel, and it was pretty good. It's too bad it never came out. It was also the only way you could play Pulse Man in the States, I think. So was this actually a subscription monthly service? Yeah, I think it was about $11 a month. My parents paid for it as a Christmas gift for like four months, and then we canceled it. But it was really, it, it worked really well. You download a game in like 30 seconds, you start playing, it saves your save file on the local thingy. The thing with subscription models, and the other example I was going to give was GameTap, which I had for about two months before I realized it was a crock of shit. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. Um, which was, it, for those who don't know, uh, Turner Broadcasting Incorporated owned this little... Uh, digital download a game and play it instantly kind of service it wasn't streaming video like uh, on live or gaikai but uh you basically it was like a prototypical steam before steam became good it kind of started as like only like classic like legacy games like arcades and like early console games right yeah well they tiered it where it was like classic arcade games for free and if you wanted to play like sam and max season one or uru the mist like mmo <laughs> yeah Who i know right <laughs> I did. It was horrible. <laughs> I played for about 20 minutes. Um, so here's here's my thesis, basically, and I want to hear what you guys think. Those subscription models have gone away because they are marketed towards, I think, the core gamer. But what we've seen is that through Steam, through Humble Bundles, etc., through goodoldgames.com, those people want to own the game outright. You know, DRM aside, which Steam has, but Good Old Games doesn't, they want to own the game and they voted that way with their money. So those services exist where you can own a, you know an IP, a game, but the subscriptions have gone away. And the customers are fairly adamant about keeping those like DRM-free options with the, the humble bundles and stuff, aren't they? Like, absolutely, yeah. it's huge. Wasn't that a big con- point of contention with like the Origin bundle, whereas like people were worried that like Origin was going to be the only way you could play those games? Yes, I think it was more the overall trend of you know big companies also doing bundles, and then you're not oh. getting a DRM-free option, but. Uh, I don't know. I didn't think it was that big of a concern, especially given that the Humble Store exists now, and that's all either DRM-free or Steam Redemption, I believe. Yep. However, I feel like we've been ignoring the elephant in the room in terms of this, because we have a lot of forward-thinking companies who do subscriptions that provide games with the subscription. Microsoft just got on board. Sony's been doing that. Uh, Sega in the past. Nintendo has failed to embrace either the subscription model or the deep discount model. Really, they're they're kind of dinosauric in the way that they've been handling online and uh, digital transactions. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count the ways that Nintendo's <laughs> policies towards games are archaic, though. I mean, that's that's generally true, but I mean, it's especially painful when you guys bought uh, Pokemon on your 3DS, but it's tied to that 3DS because it's a digital download. No other platform does that. No, that's, that's a bummer, yeah. I guess, I mean, is it... Nintendo has an ego for some reason, but you look at Pokemon that's sold already now four to five million plus copies, so do they, they don't think that they have to discount anything, and I remember that even on the Nintendo 64 that um, the games that would come out from two years before were still full price two years later while other PlayStation games would be dropping. Like I, I think that they just don't think that they have to do it and the consumers still buy it. So why do they need to? Well, there's also the matter that Nintendo's in a huge position that they don't have 
any other means of which they can rely on. I mean, Sony's got their other arms, Microsoft's got their other arms, and for PC uh, people, I mean, you've got a wide, much wider audience than Nintendo. Nintendo is in a unique position that you can only play their games on Nintendo hardware, so they can keep this kind of very closed off, this very walled garden, because... I don't know, essentially they have to. If they start deep discounting everything, if they start devaluing their own products, then hardware would become the only like real source of revenue for them, and that's not reliable at all. Right. Nintendo's success has always come from its like steadfast focus on vertical integration. Everything comes down to that model of we make the hardware that plays the software that you only get from us, and it's cyclical like that, which is why they've been able to get by just fine without discounting like their Marios and Zeldas on retail or digital. Whether or not they can make more money and recruit more people and build more goodwill by discounting those things, by offering sales, by offering services, that kind of stuff to keep parity with Steam is a very good question, though. Unrelated to pricing, what's going to be the key factor of Nintendo is the day that like Miyamoto either retires or, rest in peace, like passes away. Like At that point, there's going to be a huge... Paul over Nintendo, like, what does their future look like? What What is going to happen with this company? Because, I mean, you think about the, Ninten- the titles that people are excited from Nintendo this year. It's like you got Pokemon, which is Game Freak, and that'll go on for however long that goes on for. <laughs> Till the Armageddon. You got Mario and Zelda, which just came out yesterday, both of which are largely Miyamoto properties. How much involvement he has in those developments is kind of up in the air, but he's absolutely, like, working with these people, working on these projects, contributing to like the path that these titles are going in. I, I, I think in this is not going to be the perfect example, but the way Nintendo prices its stuff is kind of on the same tier as Apple, in my opinion. They don't think that they have to. Nintendo's not a boutique brand as much as Apple is, which, you know, it, it's great and also fashionable right now, but Nintendo has a track record for solid hardware, at least as far as, you know, it's a game machine. And at least in my experience, it does what it needs to do and it's reliable in that sense. But both of those companies don't have to discount anything because people who will pay the price, of course, different stories and different profit ability, but um, just Nintendo, like Nick's saying, and like we're kind of talking about just does their own thing. But you're ignoring with, uh, with Apple, um, they kind of know where they're making their money. I mean, there's a reason that Mavericks is free for OS ten users because they make their money from hardware. Nintendo doesn't have that concept. There is no, like, this is where we make our money. It's like they're, they're treating hardware and software as both, like, potential revenue earners. Yeah, that's true. And they had a huge war chest from the last generation, which didn't hurt. But But, but they can't... They can't discount their software for the reasons that we mentioned. They can't discount their hardware the way that, or they can't take a loss on hardware the way Microsoft and Sony are with their current consoles. You you make a good point. And there's one last thing I wanted to raise about the whole Nintendo scenario, which is there's been a, a lot of talk a few weeks ago recently about um, whether Nintendo should be branching out and becoming a software-driven company and releasing Mario and Zelda titles on iOS, on Android, on other platforms, which to the average gamer it probably sounds like anathema like there's no fucking way they would do that right but a uh, prominent blogger uh, with an Apple focus uh, John Gruber who writes Daring Fireball posed that question a while ago which drew like a huge response you know mostly negative but 
His points about the business, though, were pretty pretty salient, which is that Nintendo makes really good hardware and doesn't sell enough of it, and their IP is limited to that hardware, and they're showing no signs of like thinking outside of that. When the average kid, probably for Christmas, if they can get like if they're lucky enough to get a two hundred dollar gift from their parents, which is you know again a position of privilege, but those kids are going to ask for an iPod Touch over a three DS probably or a Vita. The question just becomes like, what are they going to sell more? Are they going to sell more copies of forty dollar Mario on like five million three DSs, or are they going to sell more copies of five dollar Mario on hundred million iPod Touches? It's a good question. And don't you think that they might pull the Square Enix pricing model of their iOS editions and still charge you twenty dollars? I don't see them doing like a dollar Mario game or even five dollars. Yeah. No, I don't think they would. But I'll also, in uh, Gruber's defense, he didn't think they should either. He thought a $10 Mario Kart with like, add-on tracks for additional purchases would make perfect sense. However, and this is kind of my view on the whole thing, Mac OS didn't make it to any other platform until the departure of Jobs the first time from Apple. I don't think we're going to see anything remotely like that happen until Miyamoto is no longer with Nintendo, regardless of what, are, what circumstances occur there. I think it's probably less Miyamoto and Iwata. Yeah, Iwata. Miyamoto is just, like, games. He's just software. He's not doing a whole lot with hardware there. I wish we could have heard uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi's thoughts on this, um, but he was pretty kind of out of the loop after he stepped down. The uh, former president of Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Well, if we have any bright spot to look forward to is Nintendo is... Uh, redoing some um, uh, Hanafuda cards. So, you know, they have, they're really going to branch out their hardware market to start uh, going back to like it's 1890 when the company was around. Huh. So I think they're good, you know. They just got to focus on that now. I think the key thing to take away from this is that, especially when you're an enthusiast, like, it's nice to have these discounts everywhere. But when it comes down to brass tacks, like, if you make something worthwhile, worth spending the money on, like, people are going to pay full price for it. You're going to find some kind of audience, whether you're Nintendo or Sony or Microsoft or even a lot of iOS developers. Like There are still titles where if there's enough acclaim for it, if there's enough momentum behind it, something to get me interested, something that makes it look unique and original, Like I will pay what you're asking for. You just got to make that case. I think that's a good note to end it on. Um... Do you guys have any parting thoughts before we close this off? Um, I'm not looking forward to the Steam sale this winter, which always bankrupts <laughs> me. <laughs> oh, God, it's so true. I got to set a budget like going to Vegas. Yeah, that's the problem with gamers like me who are natural collectors is after kind of parting with my uh, soft or my, my ha- hardware, like <laughs> my hard software copies, however you want to phrase that, uh, physical I just now will buy crap on Steam or Humble Bundles just because I might not play it, but I want to have it. It's cheap. Well, out of curiosity, Aaron, is there anything that you haven't bought this year that you would very much like to see discounted? Like something you're especially price sensitive to? Even though I hate it, I would play Call of Duty every year if it was $10. <laughs> Me too. Like, yeah, I'm ashamed, I, but yeah. yeah I, I, I totally, totally would. would. I, I would play the multiplayer long enough to the point where I'm just getting my ass kicked in every match and then I'd probably stop. I would love a freemium Call of Duty multiplayer-only mode. Oh, but that, the audience would be so terrible. I know. I just turn on voice chat and pretend like it's not happening. 
Or or you leave voice chat on and you troll the fuck off of them. That's <laughs> the fuck the, off of them. <laughs> that's the Spencer Tordoff method. It works in Battlefield 4. I like it. It's fun. Speaking of which, we should probably get to that soon. Yes. My final thought is basically the same as Aaron's, except I do genuinely want to play every game that I buy in a bundle or on a sale. And then, you know, I wearily kind of look at my games list and sigh and fire up Alpha Centauri again. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're broken. You pronounce it genuine? Like like the rapper? It's genuine. There's a slight difference. Yeah, yeah. And also, yeah, I'm super broke right now. So honestly, it doesn't really matter. Except for the games that seem to make their way into my possession by way of Aaron or other friends. That's right. You're mine now. You're sugar daddies. Yeah, so to speak. All right, Tyler, Aaron, Spencer, thank you for joining me. Productive discussion as always. Let's uh, guard our wallets carefully this holiday season and try not to become consumer, like, soulless junkies like America wants us to be. And uh, I will see you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. The Silicon Sasquatch Podcast is a production of SiliconSasquatch.com. Our panelists for this episode were Nick Cummings, Aaron Thayer, Tyler Martin, and Spencer Tordoff. The episode was produced by Spencer Tordoff. And the remainder of our staff is Doug Bonham and Britt McGinnis. If you'd like to hear or see more of our work, please check out siliconsasquatch.com. <laughs>